Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is David. We are into week seven now of the lockdown. I hope you're doing all right. I hope you're thriving. Some may be thriving. I hope you're surviving if it's uh, been difficult for you. Again, you know the drill. We're trying to make economics comprehensible, legible, relevant to all of our lives and it is getting weirder and weirder by the week. I'm as always joined down the tube by my old mate Mr John Davis. What is the crack my man? How are you Mac? How was your week? It's been grand. It's been grand. I am beavering away on a new big project that I hope to have done 2023, 24 at this stage. There was a sort of a deadline in June. That's well, gone. Tell us about that. Exactly. No, I'll tell you all about it. But it's I'm, I'm in good form, yeah. How, yeah. What about yourself? Oh, well, you know, it was another week uh, in lockdown, but actually it was quite a good week and a bad week. I had no internet for half the week. Yeah, what was the story there? Oh, Virgin Media. But anyway, it's all sorted now. So it's, but I'd, you can imagine if this was 15 years ago and there was no internet, what the hell would people do during lockdown? Like our Very kids would have gone mad. Very good question. Drink stag? <laughs> Drink more stag. Exactly. Go but, on. Why, uh, why was it a yeah, week for you? Well, I got my dishwasher fixed, which is, believe me, was a huge thing. First world problem, but a huge thing. On the issues of dishwashers, if you do want to read about why the dishwasher and the washing machine <laughs> was a far more significant development for society and humankind than even the internet, maybe, oh. have a look at Ha Jung Chang, Korean economist's Fantastic book, The 24 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. Oh, yes. It's a great read. That is a good book. That is go, a good book. Go for book. it anyway. So, so you're this harmony. Yeah. Absolutely. But I have this big box of cassettes with all these rough mixes and session tapes and outtakes and all that kind of stuff from the recording days. And I have no cassette deck. I haven't had a cassette deck in ages. But on a, I got onto Amazon. I got one of these little Walkman-style cassettes. You just bought a so Walkman? I could, so, yeah. An old, just Excellent. so I could listen to them. And I started wanting to kind of digitize them as well. So I started going through all these old stuff, like, you know, from bands that I'd worked on, you know, whether it's Something Happens or Aslan stuff or Hot Ass Flowers, and then bands, demos that I had done, like with bands like Brat. These are all kind of mid-late 80s and stuff. Big and hair. Big hair, very big hair. Good. The interesting thing was, when I started listening to it, I was brought straight back to those, those sessions and the atmosphere and the excitement and all that. Music is an amazing way of doing that. But, but that was a really exciting time in your life. I remember I was, yeah. John was being, had this really funky existence here in, in Dublin and in London, hanging out with bands. And I was an economist in the Central Bank. <laughs> <laughs> the most boring job. Oh, how times home. have changed. Oh. <laughs> Go on, anyway. But uh, there was one cassette I came across which made me burst out laughing and also cringe at the same time. And it was with a guy called Smiley Culture. I don't know if you remember Smiley Culture. Himal, Himal talking like that, dear. Yeah, absolutely. And one of his biggest hits was called Cockney Translation, which translated Cockney to Patwa. And, no. Uh, yeah, and it was a huge oh, hit. Fantastic. It was a huge hit. But anyway, so I did a track with him called, what was it called? Can't Stop the Rap. And I was fresh off the boat, still green, wet behind the ears, hadn't acclimatised myself yet. But I was booked for this gig. I wasn't sure who Smiley Culture was anyway. So I was sitting in the studio, Red Bus Studios, waiting for people to turn up 
And in comes Smiley Culture with a big puff of smoke and a foot long joint in his hand. And the Camberwell, the Camberwell <laughs> carrot. The Camberwell <laughs> carrot. And we're chit chatting away and stuff. And he hands me over this big two inch multi track tapes. And he goes, Yeah, man, set this up. And, you know, he's going to head off for a few hours. I set up the mix. So laced up the tape, started opening the faders. And it was all this hip hop sounds. Now, you got to remember, I had just come from Dublin where I just finished two months on an Aslan album and a month on a Cactus World News album. There ain't no hip hop there, man. No, so I didn't really understand it. So this is my first encounter in a studio. And I was kind of lifted. Did you up. get it? Not immediately. And then I kind of sat back and kind of went, right, okay, I'll just do my stuff. So I started mixing away and putting lovely reverbs and whooshes and delays and all the rest. And a couple of hours later, another big puff of smoke and Smiley's back. And he sits in the, in the back and he goes, yeah, man, play the track, you know. So I hit play and I'm sitting back kind of a little bit chuffed myself. Loving your work. I, yeah, I thought, yeah, I've really got this down. I've got the groove going. And song finishes and he nodding away and he goes, yeah, man, sounds real like a uh, professional, you know, but it don't sound like it came from the street, you know. <laughs> that was your <laughs> that was it. Like, what? what? What does that mean? <laughs> and he just pump up the bass. <laughs> and he goes along and it was a horrendous mix. Now he did release it. We didn't release my mix. But I, I, it was just so funny, you know, with him smoking the big foot-long joint, I was half-baked anyway. But then I, last night, I decided, where is he now? And I wanted to find out. And I, I heard that he died, but I wanted to make sure. So I discovered that after the 90s, he went into diamond mining. Where? In, in West Africa, Africa. In West Africa, Uganda. Probably uh, Sierra Leone. That's where yeah. all the diamond mines are. Liberia, Sierra Leone. And That's, you then, know, all the child soldiers and all that stuff you see yeah, about Sierra the, Leone. and The blood and, and, diamonds. And Liberia, yeah, yeah. Very, very dodgy. And then in 2010, he got arrested for coke. And he didn't turn up in court. So cops went down to, to arrest him. And apparently he died. Uh, he killed himself by stabbing himself in the heart. Jesus. Uh, by the way, we don't always uh, open the podcast with such uh, gruesome stories. Yeah, I know. This is like Harry Kiri Rasta style. But that's what it was. Now, apparently there wasn't a full report made at the time or wasn't made public. Remember in 2011, there was huge London riots. Apparently that was a big contributing factor. So there you go. What was the big contributing factor? His um, death. His death. Because it was in the hood and it was... This is when the cops. relations were yeah. between black communities and, and cops was really bad in London. That's a fascinating story. Now you see why the lockdown is being used by various people <laughs> in various different ways. John, of course, is going back to his, uh, his golden age. The roads man. His golden age. That's a brilliant story. Brilliant story. By the way, John's back catalogue of yarns is an outstanding back catalogue. He's only just beginning to get comfortable with the medium. In a couple of weeks' time, you're going to get all I've, sorts I've of... Morphia, I've morphia, It's, it's going to be tales of the unexpected yeah. from John Davis in various studios around West London circa 1987 to 1995. That's about right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. But you're all good anyway. It's all that. good, yeah. Cool. So, come here, tell us. Just saw there recently that the government... With their 250 million quid grant yes, for, yes, small for small businesses. What's, what's that all about? Tell okay, us. so John, you know that I've always believed that small businesses are the heart and soul of the economy. Yeah, of course. They are. That basically you can't run an economy with multinationals and civil servants alone, right? Yeah. That the big chunk in the middle are small businesses. And I also think that the government up until now has been really remiss in terms of trying to give them a break. And the reason it has been is because I don't actually think that the Department of Finance and Central Bank together understood the significance of the policy latitude that the ECB gave Ireland when it said three weeks ago, we will refinance you at zero percent, so the ECB. Yeah, what, what's said, the significance so of that? This is hugely significant, and I, I, I'm glad now the government are beginning to slowly react to it. But slowly is, you know, it's better. It's better they're doing things yeah. than doing nothing. So, the ECB, and this is crucial to understand, because basically, this is the power of money, and the power of money in a pandemic is overwhelming, if used in the right way. So the ECB said we are going to make 750 billion euros available to Eurozone members, member states, 
okay, to do what you want. And we're going to charge you an interest rate of less than zero, of minus 7.5%. Now, what that meant was three things, Jonathan. One is you can borrow as much as you need right now, mm. okay, at no cost. Yeah. That's the first thing, right? Now, obviously, your borrowing level goes up because you issue a debt, right? You yeah. issue a bond, but it's at no cost, right? So number one, so it's free money. Number two, and this is the crucial thing, it means you can refinance the entire economy. So for example, if all mortgages and all loans were at three, four, five percent, they can all now be refinanced at zero percent. Right. But they haven't done that yet. But this is what it actually means intellectually. Yeah. This is what this is the permission it's given, right? So what you can actually do then is you can refinance everything, all mortgages at zero. So basically any company or any individual in Ireland who has at the moment significant mortgage repayments and our repayments on machinery, and our repayments on premises, they can all technically now drop to zero, and nobody will go bust. I'll explain that in a minute. Right. And finally, it means that the government could issue an IOU, this perpetual bond I talk about, right, get it financed at 0%, and drop money into either companies or people's back pockets to stimulate demand. This is the helicopter money. Right. So this is intellectually what the ECB has done. I just don't think our fellows are clever enough to understand that. Well, I, I'm not sure if I understand it perfectly either, but so what is the difference between tax cut and helicopter now, money then? So basically, you know, in economics, there's these two, two ideas. There's a fiscal policy, which is tax and spending, yeah. and monetary policy, which is interest rates and the amount of money. Yeah. Now, conceptually in economics, they are two separate things. But actually, when interest rates go to zero, they merge into exactly the same thing. So fiscal policy is monetary policy, and monetary policy is fiscal policy. So what by that I mean, if the government wants to raise 100 million when interest rates are zero, they just issue an IOU of 100 million. Mm, okay. They bring that to the central bank, and the central bank just prints the money. So basically, there's no distinction between the two because interest rates have fallen to zero. So the price of money is zero. So conceptually, what's interesting is people don't seem to understand that if you get a thousand quid in your back pocket as helicopter money, yeah, it's exactly the same as a tax cut. So basically, if you get a tax cut tomorrow, that money comes to you. That's new money that you didn't have yesterday. Yeah. It comes to you and you say, oh my God, I feel richer. It's exactly the same as helicopter money. It's a tax cut. But the problem is that because we've been used to tax cuts, we've become inured to the idea. We actually accept them, right? But because helicopter money seems unusual, I think, oh, there must be a catch here. It's exactly the same. So much of our, you notice this in a lot of ways of life, a lot of parts of life, Jonas, much of our resistance as humans to new ideas is more conceptual than rational. So we're not used to the concept Right. So therefore, we think it mustn't work. So we're not. So if somebody says tax cut yeah. or gift me money, you say, well, you can't have money as a gift, but you can. It's exactly the same thing. So, for example, the zero interest rates gives us that latitude. Now, the reason all this is important is because small businesses are going out of business. Yeah, and small businesses in Ireland employ half the population. That's the key, right? Right. So every single job that is in a small business is in jeopardy. And the problem is when small businesses go out of business in a pandemic or any sort of shock, they don't reopen. Yeah. So that I've always thought of a business as, is like almost like an organism. A business is like you've got the investor maybe who might not necessarily be the owner. Then you've got the manager. Then you've got the staff. Then you've got other employees. Then you've got the customers. Then you've got all the suppliers. So what you're talking about is an ecosystem. When that closes down for want of money, mm. because the business has been shut, what you find is that doesn't reopen. So that's gone. So in this context then, just explain to me what the main difference then between a a small business, a micro business, and a bigger business? Yeah, okay. R really good question. So the first thing about small business to understand is that their margins are very low. Right, okay. So yeah. their profits are usually very, very modest. 
And the reason their profits are modest is that most small businesses swim in an incredibly competitive world, right? Yeah. So let's say we're talking bars or restaurants. So for just for the for by way of example, cafes, restaurants, yeah. bars, they tend to be labor intensive. So they employ more people than other businesses do, right? They wages tend to be a huge cost of them, right? They also tend to have very small margins, right? Yeah. And the reason they have small margins is because their access to capital is limited. So if you have small margins, right, if your profit margins are low and you go to a bank and say, I would like a big loan, the banks say, well, actually, no, mate, sorry, you can't have it because your profits are low. So the reason you would want to loan is that if a small business wants to become a big business, what it has to do is it has to grow very quickly. But it's very difficult to grow very quickly if you're in a competitive market. So in a way, small businesses are kept small by other small businesses. Sure, yeah, Right, yeah, if yeah. you figure that, okay. right, look yeah. at that. So a business that has high margins is usually a business that has a unique product or like a patent mm. and is trending towards monopoly, right? It's becoming the dominant player, right? Now, the reason it's becoming the dominant player is it has either usually a unique product or lots of capital. Right. So it's actually spending so much. So basically, very few small companies break out of the small company world, even though that's their objective. Mm. They're usually dragged back by other small companies. A good example of a small company that did break out is Ryanair. So Ryanair started as a very small company okay. in a very competitive industry, mm. or apparently competitive industry. And then O'Leary figured out, no, this is not that competitive. In actual fact, if we can bring our cost base down, we can grow rapidly. Yeah. But Ryanair is a one in a million company. They don't happen that often, right? Yeah. What tends typically to happen now is all the, the what I call the gee whiz bang companies, the Silicon startups, right? <laughs> Silicon Valley startups are big because they've loads of investor capital. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So they have an unbelievable supply of cash. That's why they're big, right? Yeah. It's not some great genius. It's, it's the fact they've got loads of cash. So if we come back to Ireland, our small businesses don't have access to cash. They're very small margins. And they're usually what they call bootstrapped, which is they're financed out of their own capital cash, yeah. right? Yeah. The reason this is important is when their cash flow stops, like has happened in COVID, any assets they have are illiquid. And what that means is that any assets they have are usually the building they're in or maybe some specialist equipment they have. Like if you're a sure. restaurant, you have a, you know, ovens or whatever. It's been, mm. You can't sell those quickly in a downturn. Yeah. They're illiquid. So unlike a big company that can sell its own shares. And they're probably still paying their... They're probably still playing the leases or whatever yeah, it happens yeah, to yeah. be, right? So, so they're entirely dependent on cash flow, right? If you close them down because of a pandemic, they don't reopen because they've no alternative sources of cash. And what people also don't realize, and I've always been a, a big supporter, is that the small business owner is kind of a hero of mine. They're kind of heroic people. Mm. People forget that these are the these are the characters who are awake at night. These are the characters yes. who worry yeah, yeah, about yeah. everything. There's so many things going on in their heads. There's a product, there's advertising, there's paying the staff, there's paying the taxes, there's figuring out, can we do this, can we do that? These are extraordinarily energetic individuals. And I think, and I've told you this before, we've talked over the years, I've always been angered at the way in which they're kind of dismissed by what I would call third-rate ideologues or even third-rate intellectuals mm. who always look down their nose at these people. And I believe they're the heroes of the economy because they employ so many people. They're the lifeblood of the economy. And, I mean, we've talked about before, you know, people who really twigged them. In, in Joyce's day, in James Joyce's day, oh, yeah, yeah, they were yeah. called the civic bourgeoisie. Right. And Joyce was a modernist, right? And he thought, you know, rather than make the hero some sort of Hamlet-type character, like Shakespeare, right? <laughs> a, a prince. Yeah. Let's make the hero an advertising copywriter yeah, like yeah. Bloom. I always thought that was a really odd choice, actually. <laughs> but it's really strange. Advertising this, was big, really. Well, yeah, because it happened, it was kind of really neurotic, anxious, Leopold Bloom, yeah. an outsider, used to fuss about making tea, was worried about how the sewers worked in Dublin, was obsessive about whether the trams ran on, on time. These were his obsession. He had the obsession of the... Not the every guy, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. some sort of soliloquy, should I kill myself? Should I not? All that sort of stuff, right? And that's what I love. So Joyce put the small businessman central to his world mm. and the everyday experience of the small businessman. The reason I champion these is they're the people who are being crushed by the pandemic. That's the thing. Yeah. So the big companies has got access to investors' cash. It's got access to the stock market. It's got access to banks. You know, that's the first thing. The big 
for example, semi-state companies here in Ireland, you know, like your your gas companies, your electricity companies, mm. they're fine. They're all yeah. It's the small companies are being exposed. So do you think this 250 million grant is going to be enough? Is it, it's it's certainly going the wrong, along the right lines, sure. Yeah, and I think it is. Yeah. Because a small company has two costs. One is its fixed costs, one is variable costs, right? It's moving in the right direction. What has happened in the UK, for example, the UK moved quicker on this. They've given a loan, a zero interest rate loan to small companies up to £50,000, right? What we're looking is doing something quite similar, except we're giving a grant. Now, I happen to think a loan is a better way of doing it. And the reason a loan is a better way of doing it is because what the Brits have done is they've made their banking system subordinate to the government. They said to the banks, you know, Barclays and all this, you administered this, right? You do what you would always do but make sure these people get the loans. Mm. My fear is that a grant-based system, you've got applications, it's a bureaucracy, you get the bureaucracy involved, and suddenly you're actually in process that actually takes a long, long time. But it is a move in the right direction. The reason we could do it is, first of all, the ECB has said, we will finance everything. Mm. So I come back to what we were talking about. The Irish banks could do this in a heartbeat, reprice every loan to zero, the ECB has set up a loan extension called TLTRO, which is basically a technical thing. It doesn't matter, right? right? Okay, yeah, it's yeah. all doable. AIB is 70% owned by the state here. So AIB could start that. And once AIB started it, the other banks would have to do it because people would migrate to the other banks. So if you if you knew that sure. AIB was giving you a mortgage for nothing, you'd, you'd say to that Bank of Ireland, sorry, I'm gone, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so all you do is one bank to do this. And then you think, okay, but how would it work? Because the banks earn money by charging the borrower interest and yeah. then giving the depositor money. But the reason is central banks can do a thing called dual interest rates. They can give depositors 1% on their deposit and still charge borrowers zero because the central bank can do anything. It's a thing called dual interest rates right. in monetary economics, right? It's a very simple idea, yeah. right? That basically you split your balance sheet, right? And then you think, okay, but if the central bank is financing the bank's to give interest, surely the central bank then will go bust. Yeah. But the interesting is central banks can't go bust. You've never heard of a central bank going bust. And the reason they can't go bust is they actually print the money. Yeah. So it's a thing called seniorage in economics, which is how much money the central bank makes from printing it. Yeah. And then you say, well, our central bank doesn't print it, but it doesn't print it, but the ECB has actually said, we're going to backstop everything at zero. So the only difference between when I was a central banker and now is that the lender of last resort is the European Central Bank. Right. So what you can see is this way. The European Central Bank says we will backstop everything. That allows the Irish Central Bank to instruct our banks to reduce interest rates and reprice the entire debt structure of the economy. Everything, right? Mm. If the banks say we're going to go out of business for doing this, the Central Bank say, don't worry, we're going to give you one rate of interest for your depositors so they can stay happy. And we're going to give another rate of interest for your borrowers so they can be happy. And we're going to wear the spread in the middle. We're going to take the fall. And you say, but don't central banks go bust? No, they don't because the ECB is standing behind them and saying, we'll give you everything at zero. So you can see there is a pathway, John, to saving the small business community. If we save the small business sector of the economy, we save the economy, we save the jobs. And there is an economy left when this pandemic disappears, to reignite. And that's the prize. Yeah, it's owed to be a fly in the wall in the central bank at the minute. (laughs) Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, so earlier in the week, we did a shout out about yeah. uh, small businesses and what we can do to Well, I just think, John, you know, boost. yeah, no, I think, look, John, we're in a very privileged position and, and I'd like to say thank you to, to our listeners, to you who's listening. Here, here. You've made the podcast incredibly successful. We had no idea it was going to be this successful. We're now on about 120, maybe 130,000 downloads a week always either number one or two in the charts. And, and and so, John, that means that we have the same circulation as a significant Sunday newspaper. Yeah. And I was thinking, why don't we give some free ads to people? Why don't we tell the world about some businesses? Well, if this isn't the time to do that. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so if you're a small company, we have so many listeners. Lots of those listeners will be consumers. They might be suppliers. So the idea is... In the spirit of Schumpeter. Remember our idea was Absolutely, yeah, Joseph yeah. Schumpeter, the, the great economist, his whole idea was this thing called creative destruction, that the economy can be explained, the growth in the economy can be explained by new businesses, replacing old businesses, adapting to change environment and almost like evolutionary economics, mm. that basically the environment changes, the new business changes. And if anything signals a change in the environment, it's the COVID close down the lockdown so what what we're doing every every week is we'll shout out on on uh, on twitter on facebook is to find companies that have said in the face of this look fuck it i'm not going out of business here i'm going to change yeah and i'm going to try and grow so it's to champion those companies to give them advertising to tell their story to allow our listeners see that there's companies out there and to generate business for them and if we can do that We'd have done a great job. Absolutely. Pivot is the hip term. Oh, no, we can't be using that shy. <laughs> so so we're going to call this section the Schumpeter Slot. The Schumpeter Slot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Listen, our first guy is a fella called Doug Ledden. I talked to him earlier on. Doug, how are you? How are you getting on, David? I'm great. Tell me about StuffYouNeed.ie. Uh, stuff you need started off. The initial plan was to start off as an online grocery business. I had a bar called Ohana on Harcourt Street, and my business partner had a restaurant on Georgia Street in, in Tala called Wingus. And we knew on the 12th of March when Leo made an announcement that uh, things were going to get very different very quickly. I, I had to shut shop straight away, and Sebastian and his team knew that they were going to be limited to what they could do. So we had to look at Wuhan and in Italy and realize that there was going to be a huge demand to online shopping and home deliveries. So we decided to build a kind of stuff you needed, the, the bare essentials at the very start, maybe 50 SKUs, and ensure that we could offer delivery within 48 hours. So that's what it started off as. And tell us, so you're partnering with all sorts of other Irish small businesses, I presume, to try and get their stuff to market as well. Yeah, so after we launched it and we tested the waters with the 50 products and we knew we could deliver it, we obviously had a, our warehouse rented in Dunleary and we reached out to other restaurants and, and local suppliers. So the likes of Bretzel Bakery, who we're big fans of. So we are, uh, we're really supportive. We teamed up with Platform Pizza and Boxburger and we've teamed up now with Smoking Bones and we've a list of about 10 more restaurants coming on board. The idea was to kind of be a little bit more disruptive. What could we do differently than one of the big multiples? And it was to offer that home experience to somebody, to give somebody something to do in the afternoon or the evenings at the weekend, whether that's creating your perfect pizza from platform or making a cocktail from Bonnock or from one of the other cocktail kits companies that we have. So we try to, everything we add on as kits, we try to make it Irish and also to give somebody something to do. So they're not just purchasing and getting it delivered. They're having an experience with it because during the lockdown, People are getting a little bit antsy. 
So listen, Doug, that's brilliant news. Listen, well done. Congratulations. I hope it goes very well for you. I believe the start's been pretty good. Yeah, it's been really, really good. We've done 3,000 deliveries to date uh, and we launched on the 20th of March. So just over uh, six weeks. So it's it's climbing each week, week on week. We can see that in the trends in Ireland with online growth up 11%, albeit grocery sales themselves were up 43%, so it's a little bit skewed. Uh, but we believe that we've created a niche with really strong Irish products and with our fingers on the pulse for able to roll out new restaurant kits week on week, which is adding to our marketing and adding to our story and getting a lot more people behind us. And just, uh, Doug, post-COVID, what, what do you think is going to happen to this product? <laughs> we got very excited on this 16th of April and Link went into our group of your podcast, which was saying that people's trends and changes are going to change. And that was obviously just a couple of weeks after we launched Stuff You Need and we couldn't agree more with what you were discussing. You were saying people in the, I think it was the 80s and 90s, used to get their fruit and veg and their milk delivered. And we couldn't agree more. We think this has given the online commerce or business the, the boost that it needed, that it wasn't really getting in Ireland. We weren't really adapting to online shopping. And now I think people are seeing the convenience of it. And if we can start onboarding and supporting local businesses uh, over the course of the next couple of months and roll out nationwide, I don't see why this can't be a brand new business for us to keep going forevermore. Okay, so Doug, it's uh, stuffyouneed.ie. That's the site. Yeah. And uh, you're open 24-7. 24-7, 48-hour guaranteed delivery. Brilliant stuff. Listen, well done, Doug. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. So that was Doug Ledden from stuffyouneed.ie. Check it out. It's a he's he's done a great pivot. <laughs> you and your bleeding pivots. <laughs> where, sti- when did that word come into the language? Oh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's also, tech world stuff. You know really in, yeah, I know. It's let's do, I take a deep dive and unpack all that kind of stuff. Oh man. Okay, if you ever come up with that sort of shite <laughs> on this thing, we're out of here. Right. We're, we call it a day. <laughs> let's plow on. So okay, we kind of looked at Ireland and Europe and all the rest, and the way the Brits are dealing with their grants and loans and helicopter money. In America, they're also doing a helicopter money thing, but it seems much, much lower. How is that working out? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in America, well, actually, let's stand back, right? And and think about the impact of pandemics, right? Uh These sort of massive, massive shocks to the system have long-term, very, very long-term impacts on thinking, on the way in which people... So, for example, you take something, let's say... You talk about Britain. I, I, I was I was reading there. I was reminding myself there that you know, Churchill got defeated after winning the Second World War. Yeah, nobody yeah. would have predicted that, right? That and what happens is the Second World War changed the way in which Britain thought about itself, and the coming together of all the people left a legacy. And the legacy was the following: it was like, hold on a second, we need a national health service to be paid for yeah. through taxes on rich people. We need a welfare system to be paid for. We need a national education system to be paid for. And and therefore, Churchill, ironically, was, if you can say this, the general fighting the last war. He decided that he would fight the general election after the Second World War on the basis we go back to the same. Yeah. But the people had moved on. Yeah. So I think what we find in all this, in the United States in particular, and in Europe, is people will really have a different view of the way the economy works and the way money works and the way the whole system works. So, right. for example, you know, the Great Depression changed forever how people thought about economics. Yeah. Before yeah, yeah, yeah. the Great Depression, as we talked about last week, mm-hmm. classical economics, Adam Smith, all that stuff was very much the dominant vogue, right? After the Great Depression, you have Keynesianism. Keynes said, no, no, hold on a second. The state has a role. When the private sector gets traumatized and stops spending, the state should start spending. And when the private sector gets traumatized and starts saving, the state should stop saving and start spending. These were ideas that only could have come in after the Great Depression. So what's the what do you think then is the new thinking that's so going to emerge? I think the new thing that's going to emerge is going to be a derivative of something called the modern monetary theory. Okay. And modern monetary theory is a way of looking at monetary economics and money, which is completely different from anything that's gone before. Now, luckily, 
an old friend of mine is the main, <laughs> one of the main advocates of it. She was Bernie Sanders' lead economic advisor. And there's a lot of talk now in the background that Bernie and Biden have a sort of a truce. So the okay. price for Bernie's backing out, obviously the objective is to beat Trump. But the price is that, you know, Bernie has all these people they call progressives in the States. Mm. And Biden is more or less the old style Democrat. And what happens in the left is if they don't have an alliance, they end up eating themselves. Yes. This is always yeah, the yeah, left yeah, way yeah, yeah. spoken okay. before. So so what I'm hearing, I mean, it's what I'm reading is that basically there was a deal done between the Bernie side of the Democrats, which is the more progressive side, yeah. okay, the more left-wing side, and the Biden side, which is the more traditional center-left. And their idea is Trump's ratings in the polls are falling and Trump's beginning to panic and his people are beginning to panic. So the reason you haven't seen much of Biden is because they're probably their idea is to let him hang himself. I'm not sure if that if that's the best approach to take. And the reason why I say that is because what has become very clear in the last month or two months with, with Trump's leadership is that there's no leadership. It's confused thinking and all this. And and what they actually, what America needs in general is leadership. And this is Biden's opportunity to not interfere as such and be criticizing Trump all the time, but to stand up as a figure who is solid and is the leader in waiting. Yeah, almost kind of Obama-esque yeah. to be the one who's, who transcends exactly. the, yeah, yeah. The, the divide. Yeah, I suppose you're right. But I mean, look, the problem with American politics is that it's a dogfight. Yeah. And there is no leader. And the showing leadership and showing maturity and showing all these characteristics that we would love to see in leaders don't seem to energize either base yeah. in any way. So what you get is petulance and you get rancor and you get short-term thinking. But my my sense is that the Democrats are trying to put together this melange of the left. Yeah. And one of the big ideas is the idea that Stephanie and other economists have come up with this called MMT. And it's really quite fascinating. It's it's not as radical as it sounds. And the great thing about Stephanie is I caught up with her last week and this is what she had to say. Stephanie, how are you? I'm all right. How are you, David? I'm great. I'm great. Tell, Explain MMT to me and what is it and what is the opportunity that you see in the future for it? Sure. Well, I mean, this is an endeavor that began some 24, 25 years ago, something like that with a sort of small group of economists producing, you know, papers and thinking about a variety of questions, including the nature and origin of money, the modern monetary system, the system that we have today, how it's different from the system that was in place, let's say, pre-1971. So before 1971, the international monetary system was essentially built around a gold standard. Okay, the U.S. dollar sat at the center. This was a monetary arrangement that was hammered out at a meeting in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944, where a number of countries came together and agreed to fix the value of their currencies to the U.S. dollar. And the United States, for its part, pledged to convert the U.S. dollar into gold at a fixed price. So we had effectively a gold standard in place from 1944 until 1971. And then something important happened. And the international monetary system changed in a very important fundamental way. And it's in some ways as if we've just failed to recognize the significance of that shift and to appreciate the policy space that is now available to many countries because they no longer tether their currencies to another country's currency or to gold. We're not on a gold standard. And so we have today for a number of countries what we call a floating currency, floating exchange rate, and a fiat currency. And that gives policymakers additional policy space to run their macroeconomic policy fiscal and monetary, in ways that allow them to achieve the domestic goals of full employment and modest, or you could say, price stability. So 
that's essentially what the project is about. It's about understanding the monetary system that's in place today and the capacities that it affords governments when they have what we call a sovereign currency. Okay, explain to me now, for example, if in Ireland, okay, let's say in the United States, you wanted to build a new metro system or a new hospital system post-COVID, what is the difference between financing it via MMT and financing it the way we're doing at the moment? Okay, here's, I think, a really good question and and an important point that I think too often people get confused and they think that MMT is saying something that it isn't saying. So let me try to um, correct that because, you know, I was trained as an economist. I went all the way through graduate school and I was taught that governments have choices to make when it comes to financing their expenditures that one way to finance government spending is to raise taxes, to come up with the money by putting up a tax, collecting revenue, and the government can finance its spending that way. Alternatively, the government could borrow funds. So if it wants to spend 100, but it's only going to collect 90 in tax, then I was taught that there's a shortfall and the government has to make up for the difference somehow, and that it does that by borrowing. So selling bonds is another way to finance government spending. The third way that I was taught is that governments can do this really wild thing, which is called just printing the money. Don't tax, don't borrow, just print the money and finance the spending that way. Now, MMT, because we're in a sense kind of obsessed with monetary operations, we get into the weeds and we explain how government finance actually works. And so we reject this uh, menu of choices kind of narrative. And we say there is only one way to pay. All government spending is financed in exactly the same way for a currency issuing government like the US, like the UK. The government spends by giving instructions to its bank, its fiscal agent, in the US, the Federal Reserve. The government spends by instructing its bank to change the numbers in someone's bank account. So there's a seller somewhere, the government is making a payment. The Fed carries out payments on behalf of Treasury by changing the numbers upward in someone's bank account. There's no other way to do it. The tax and the borrowing is secondary, but it leads us to believe that the government is running its finances more like a household, that it's coming up with the money somehow and then turning around and spending. And MMT really just says, We have to reorder the sequencing because we're getting this wrong. The spending comes first and tax and the borrow piece are secondary operations. So if you want to build a field hospital or new public infrastructure, there's only one way to do it. There's only one way to finance it, and that is through new money creation. Okay, so let's 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 stick with the hospital, right? We want to build the hospital. The hospital costs, let's say. In Ireland, the price of hospitals goes up by the day. We've got a big scandal at the moment about the fact we can't keep our hospital pricing down. But let me think about the opportunity that MMT offers, okay? Let's say you say the hospital costs $100 million to build. MMT says, credit the people who are building the hospital, let's say the the health service, uh, with the $100 million. Let them go and spend that then the income and the activities that generates from that generates the tax, and then the tax comes back a year later. And the net-net position is that you've just created something that was never there before. Well, maybe. I mean, I'm less interested, David, actually, in the tax coming back. That's not really important to me. Some of it will, uh, just as a matter of uh, the working of the tax system and the tax code, Some of that spending will end up producing income to someone, and that income will be subject to income tax, a VAT, whatever the case may be. So some of that will be taxed away, but I'm not interested in it, quote unquote, returning to the government or offsetting that spending. What what I'm interested in is whether that hospital can be built with government financing the spending in a way that avoids inflationary pressure. So When we say, let's think about, you know, uh, putting up a hospital and the government is going to credit the bank accounts of the people who are going to build it and the building materials and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to spend a lot of money. 
the question would be for me, can the Irish economy handle all of that spending? Do they have the construction workers? Do you have the machines? Do you have the steel and other equipment that's needed to you know, put up this hospital? Or is the government going to have to compete with the private sector for some of those workers, for some of that capital equipment, and thereby give rise to inflationary pressure? So the question for me is about the real resource capacity, not whether the government can recover the, the euros or the dollars that it spends into the economy. That's not what's important. So let's take, for example, in a post-corona world, right? We have unemployment here that yep. is probably, probably going to peak at 20, 25%. We, the GDP has fallen. We're in a massive deflationary world. The whole world is. It would suggest to me that the inflation threat from any change in the way in which we do business is very modest. And I'm sure it's the same, your analysis would, would lead the same conclusion in, in, in the United States. If a new administration were to come in, and if this new administration decided, like, you know, we're going to change the way we think about the world, what's your sense of, of, of the inflation risk from MMT in the United States? It's, it's such a good question. And I do tend to um, think about it the way that you're thinking about it, which is to say that I... I'm more inclined to anticipate a deflationary environment in the midst of 25, 30% unemployment, which is what we're looking at here. We could easily see the unemployment rate go above 30%. So um, levels that exceed those that we experienced during the Great Depression, the, the tricky piece of it really is the supply side, the capacity. So if we allow you know, we've got meatpacking plants, we've got food production facilities that are shutting down here because of the virus. And, you know, as long as we don't lose productive capacity, then I think we're very safe when it comes to increasing government spending, supporting incomes without worrying about the inflation risk. The only kind of variable at play would be if we do something destructive on the supply side. I mean, that's what happened in Weimar, Germany right? The hyperinflationary pressures there and in Zimbabwe, they were supply side shocks. It was a, in Zimbabwe, for example, what happened is that Mugabe came to power, wanted to reward the freedom fighters, redistributed land away from white farmers who'd been farming the land and distributed to blacks who initially did not have experience farming the land. And you had massive food shortages and prices just spiraled out of control. So if Something happened to the productive capacity in the U.S. where our factories shut down and all of a sudden you got into a situation where you're trying to juice incomes and juice demand and you, your economy can't respond by producing enough supply to keep up. I suppose it's important to recognize there is an inflation risk there, but that's not what I anticipate. What I expect is that we're going to be in a situation where the government is going to be able to do basically what FDR did um, after the Great during and after the Great Depression, which is spend a whole lot of money to employ people to support incomes and bring about a recovery. I find this fascinating because FDR was the man who actually, what you're basically saying is FDR came in, he said, you see this gold standard? This is not the way in which the world works. And we're going to abandon this gold standard. We're taking America off the gold standard. We're going to print dollars. We're going to finance the economy. And we are going to reimagine the possibilities of economics. That's really, in effect, what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, what he did was, he, you're right, he took the U.S. off the gold standard and spent a, a whole lot of money. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he printed a bunch of money. Because remember, they were still um, selling bonds during that period. And the central bank was managing the exchange rate so that the interest rate on T-bills was not allowed to go above three-eighths of a percentage point. And the rate on the 10-year treasury was held by the Fed at two and a half percent. So it looks a whole lot more like what the Fed is doing today in terms of managing interest rates down as fiscal policy expands substantially. So yes, I would say it, it looks very, very much like the policy response, in some ways, looks like what we did um, to fight the Great Depression. It's just that we're nowhere close to being having an adequate policy response in terms of the magnitude of what we're facing. If 
if what Congress had done so far and was continuing to do was all that effective, then we wouldn't be staring down unemployment rates of 30% or higher. I think that it's far too little at this point. And what worries me, frankly, the most is that you're hearing some indications from the Republicans that they basically think that they've done all that needs to be done and they can step away. And I think that's going to have disastrous consequences. Stephanie, this is great to talk to you. Uh, and listen, stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, David, take care of yourself. Cheers. Bye. Got to hope, uh, hope she comes to Kilconomics. Well, I hope Kilconomics is on this year. But... Yeah, so do I, John. So do, look, look, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But it's interesting. Let me just get it absolutely clear. So she's essentially saying you spend before you tax, yeah, which is but, quite radical, right? What she's saying is that basically tax comes after spending. Right. That you spend money first because that's what the government can do in the United States with the Federal Reserve as its as its bank. Yeah. And then you tax after that. And you don't really worry about it. Right. And it is radical, but it's also very interesting. And I'm moving, you know, I'd be persuaded by that. I'd be persuaded by the fact that if this is the most critical thing, if this pandemic leads to a depression. Everything that we thought about economics before goes out the window and you start again. And maybe, just maybe, Stephanie is in the zone and that MMT thinking is in the zone. But what it all comes down to, John, is this is a perennial, historical, millennial, not JM's mates, I'm talking thousands (laughs) of years, battle that has been there from the time of Nero. Who controls money? That's what it's all about. Who controls the money? Who issues the money? Is it the state? Is it the central bank? Do you tie it to gold? Do you tie it to silver? Who basically controls money? And so, for example, Nero was was the great debaser. He was always debasing currency, as was uh, Henry VIII, right? Right. So it's it's, it's a historical battle, John. Who controls money and why not realizing that money is a tool in a crisis can cause you enormous social difficulties. That's what it's all about. How are you doing there? How's the lockdown going for you? Why don't you use it usefully to learn economics with me? Let's learn it together. What I have is the Trinity MBA course that I give. This course is largely based on that course. It's called Global Economics, getting your head around how the economy works. So have a listen. The intro is free on Patreon. If you like it, join up. There are thousands of us doing it now. Let's do it together. Cheers.